This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. In partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we bring you our Insider Town Hall series, speaking with key decision makers in Congress and the state legislature about issues Indivisibles care about. Today, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. As chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, she has occupied a central place in the national discussion about how progressives both define and advocate for their agenda. In this town hall, we hear about her caucus's instrumental role in inserting direct payments and enhanced unemployment insurance for people and families into the recently passed COVID relief bill. We also talk about the CPC's 2021 legislative agenda, the People's Agenda, and we learn about the many ways Indivisible's agenda dovetails with it and about how we can work together to achieve common goals. This conversation was recorded on the evening of Tuesday, December 22nd. So we are extremely excited to be bringing you tonight's Congressional Insider Town Hall. As you know, we have a rock star Democratic delegation here in Washington, and we have been very, very fortunate over the last few months to get to hear from them. And we've learned about their priorities, what what is possible uh, to get accomplished in 2021 in their view. And, And we've also talked a lot about how we as activists can work together with them to achieve our common goals. It has, uh, it's been incredibly illuminating, and it, but particularly as we prepare to do the work in a post-Trump world. <laughs> Three words that I just do not get tired of saying. Uh, so before we introduce tonight's guest, I will say that we did receive a ton of your questions ahead of time. I have worked very hard to work them into the program, but we will be taking the last 15 to 20 minutes uh, to devote just to audience questions. So if I didn't get your question right, or if you have other other questions, do enter them into the chat bar. And with that, it gives me tremendous pleasure to introduce Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She represents the 7th Congressional District. She is a member of the House Judiciary Committee, where she serves as vice chair of the Immigration Subcommittee. She also serves on the House Education and Labor and Budget Committees. And this just in, she was recently elected as chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the CPC. We are so delighted that she is with us tonight. Uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, it is such a pleasure to see you. How are you? I am great, Stefan. Thank you so much. And thank you, Kat and Indivisible. Um, you know, we are so fortunate to have you as activists and organizers on the ground and helping to push bold, progressive structural change. So, I'm excited to be with you. It's. I wish it were a real town hall. I really miss my in-person town halls, but um, I really appreciate that you're pulling this together. Well, we couldn't be happier that you are here, and I will say that we are going to be devoting a good deal of our discussion uh, about how we can work together with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Um, also, I would be remiss if I did not say congratulations uh, on your election as chair, and also congratulations on your re-election. Uh, good news all around. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And thank you to all the Indivisible members who voted for me. Um, I'm really happy to report that I have gotten the most votes of any member of Congress anywhere in the United States. Wow. That is that is phenomenal. I I feel like let's see some uh, some applause emojis up on the screen. That is just tremendous. 
Um, so I, there is so much to talk about, and I, I thought we would start by uh, talking about the COVID relief package that just passed Congress. That seems like a logical place to start. Um, this was a $900 billion stimulus. I know that the, the Democrats had originally wanted uh, over $3 trillion. So I would really love to hear from you about what you feel was lacking. But let's start by talking about a couple of key provisions that made it in. And this was kind of last minute, specifically uh, direct payments to individuals and enhanced unemployment. Employment assistance. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how those made it into the bill and specifically the role that you and the Progressive Caucus played in that. Yes, um, this was very, very important. And we signaled to the speaker early, uh, as early as December 5th. Actually, there's an article in the New York Times about some of the machinations behind the scenes, and they mention our role of the Progressive Caucus. And uh, we you know, started talking to our members, heard across the board that um, we wanted to stand strong on not voting for any package that didn't include direct relief. That's these survival checks. They're not stimulus checks. They are barely survival checks, but survival checks and unemployment insurance. Those are the two most direct ways to get money to people. And so I worked, I told the speaker that if there was not those direct checks in the package that we would likely have a lot of our members that would not be able to vote for the package. So signaling that early, but then whipping our caucus, we had an emergency call um, when we found out that the package did not include checks and we immediately called um, our members together. You know, we represent about 96 members of Congress, about 40% of the Democratic caucus are progressives. And we had an amazing call actually at night, seven o'clock at night, and we had over 65 members on and person after person talked about how we could not go home without money in people's pockets, without these direct checks. And so that gave us then what we needed. We sent out a whip question. Um, We signaled to the speaker that we would lose a lot of votes, that people were willing to vote no on the final package if those two things were not there. So working with Bernie Sanders and and actually with Josh Hawley as well, Republican Senator, um, and also with some Republicans in the House, Lisa Blunt Rochester had a bill, she's a member of the Progressive Caucus as well, to give $1,000 per adult and $1,000 per child. And many of us had signed on to that bill. So in many different ways, we made it very clear we weren't gonna vote for a, a package that did not have those checks. And 48 hours later, we were able to get those checks into the bill. So it was a really amazing effort. Obviously, we did not get what we want, but just as we are having this town hall, there's a little breaking piece of interesting news, which is you might've seen that Trump just tweeted that he uh, wants to have $2,000 checks. So Speaker Pelosi immediately tweeted back at him and said, we would bring a unanimous consent motion to the floor right now um, on on the t- tomorrow actually to provide two thousand dollar checks and that obviously means that unanimous consent motion will go through unless somebody objects so if a Republican objects then I just texted the speaker to say call the house back into session let us vote on two thousand dollar checks let's call his bluff here I mean we've been trying to get two thousand dollar checks for months now and so if he wants to tweet about that then fine you know, let us vote on this. Let's send it over to the Senate and let's let Mitch McConnell show everybody in Georgia and across the country that that he is blocking really a, a, a reasonable number 
for these survival checks. So let's see what happens, but that's the story of it. But I will say that, um, you know, that this is just a three month package. Remember that the HEROES Act was 3.4 trillion, but it was for a year. Um, this is a three month package. So that's just one thing to know. And there are, even though, you know, it's a drop in the bucket, I think we need a three and a half to four and a half trillion dollar stimulus package when we get back in the new year. Um, but there are some really uh, good things. One thing about the stimulus checks, I just want to point out because we pushed very hard for this. We had to be a little quiet about it until it was signed. But that is that mixed status families will now qualify. That, as you know, is huge. It was left out of the CARES Act. And not only that, not only will they qualify for these checks, but they will also qualify for the first round of $1,200 payments. So it's retroactive. If you qualify for these checks, you would also be able to claim that first $1,200. So that is a huge thing for mixed status families. There's $25 billion in rental assistance, not only for renters, but also for mom and pop landlords. It's not enough, but it's the first time we're doing any kind of rental assistance. We extended the eviction moratorium only through January, but that is something that Joe Biden as president can do unilaterally is continue to extend that eviction moratorium. So we hope that's one of the first things he does so families don't have to worry about being evicted. We got more in SNAP benefits. We increased SNAP by 15%, actually did better than what we did in the CARES Act in this package. Um, and we were able to get uh, another, I believe it's 10 billion in idle grants. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's either 10 or 15 billion in idle grants. Those are the $10,000 grants for small businesses. So that is also there in addition to PPP money that they're trying to target towards small and medium-sized businesses. Um, so those are just some of the many things that are in the package. There is uh, 10 billion for childcare. There's about 86 billion for um, education more broadly. And I think, you know, this is just a little bit to get people through the next month and a half. And then, as I said, we're gonna have to come back and pass a real stimulus package that, um, that does a lot more than this. Otherwise, you know, there is no hope for families across the country who are struggling, no hope for our economies and for our small businesses. Well, and in fact, that is the very first item on the people's agenda, which is the Progressive Caucus's uh, agenda for 2021. Uh, and before we get into that, I will just say you you really did break some extraordinary news tonight. Um, I think a lot of people's ears pricked up when they heard uh, this news about the, the $2,000 checks. Uh, I won't ask you to get inside the head of Donald Trump as to why uh, you think he might have done that, but we will certainly be keeping an eye on that. So let's go ahead and talk about the people's well, agenda. Can I just say a word about that? Because I actually oh, think please, it's, yeah, do. it's just an important thing for us to remember. Donald Trump appeals with populist policies. He lies all the time. He says one thing, he does another. We're not even talking about those things, but he does appeal to people with populist policies. Remember, he ran on the figment of being a fair trade president. And he put Democrats, somehow he stole the mantle away um, from those of us in the Democratic Party who have fought for fair trade agreements, not free trade agreements for a long time. And he became the guy who was pushing for fair trade agreements. Now, he has done that also with this. You know, he has been saying he wants stimulus checks. But let's be very clear. When Pelosi asked 
the White House to say exactly how much they wanted in stimulus checks and to push the Republicans to put that into the package. They never gave her a number. In fact, reports are that the top White House people told Trump that there was no way they could do $2,000 checks. So this is just a game um, for them. But for real people across this country, there is a massive difference between a $600 check per adult or per child and a $2,000 check. So I say they've given us a gift by tweeting this. Let's call them on it. Let's, let's put it to the vote and let's force Republicans to say that they don't want to give money in people's pockets. Because I'll tell you what, it's populist, it's popular, it is necessary. Well, and, and again, as I say, this is something we'll certainly be keeping an eye on. And in terms of populist and necessary, I do want to discuss uh, the people's agenda, which I said, uh, as I was mentioning, is the 2021 legislative agenda. You had a tremendous rollout last night. And um, the top item, as I mentioned, is COVID relief. And so I will just ask you, you mentioned that we do need to do something uh, very shortly after Biden's inauguration. What are some of the things that you're going to be pushing for in a future relief package? Yeah, and thank you for mentioning the People's Agenda. You can go to the Progressive Caucus Facebook page and you can watch that town hall. It was with Bishop Barber, with regular people talking about the seven priority areas. Um, this is a progressive movement agenda. So many of the movement groups, um, and I'm trying to remember now, I believe Indivisible is signed on to it, um, Move On, SEIU, the Poor People's Campaign, we all combined put together this legislative agenda for 2021. So the first part is COVID relief. And what we've said is monthly stimulus checks of $2,000 per person. That's number one. We want to make sure that there's expanded unemployment insurance that is the same as the CARES Act. So that $600 that we were providing to people, that is critically important. Um, there is a whole segment about getting money directly to businesses in the form similar to my Paycheck Recovery Act. Uh, we wanna make sure that we are keeping people in their jobs. There's a million new people a week filing unemployment claims. And, and uh, so that's critically important. We also have some things like raising the minimum wage to 15. That should be done as part of the COVID package. In the same way, we believe you should cancel up to $50,000 in student loan debt. This is the proposal that Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren have put out. And we have seen all of the studies that show that this is the perfect time to do that. Um, also free and universal access to the vaccine. You know, we really highlight in the COVID relief section, the disproportionate burden on black, brown and indigenous communities. And so that is a critically important piece. State and local governments. We did get some money to states in this most recent package we passed because of the vaccine distribution, the childcare, the transit. Those are some dollars that will flow through the states, but localities are not gonna get any money and they desperately need it. And states need more money because the safety nets are administered primarily by the states and we can't afford to have people who are being laid off um, in state government, state and local governments. So those are some of the, um, and then of course, I, uh, you know, contact testing, tracing, all of that, contact tracing and testing, excuse me, 
um, all of those pieces are also in our COVID relief um, section. It is uh, an extraordinary agenda. And in fact, I, I see that Kat is posting information for people in the chat bar, including the, uh, the, the Twitter rollout and also your seven points, which include uh, fighting for workers' rights, universal health care, expanding voter rights, racial equity, investing in diplomacy and peace, restructuring our tax system. Uh, it, it's expansive. It's tremendous. I wonder how you are thinking about this agenda in terms of whether or not the Democrats take the Senate in the Georgia runoffs? A lot depends on Georgia, for sure. Um, everything gets harder if we don't have the Senate. So we do believe that we have to do, everyone has to do everything they can um, to win those Georgia seats. That said, we still think that some of these things are possible to do, even with a Republican-controlled Senate. We should send these bills over to the Republicans in the Senate and force them to take a vote on a $15 minimum wage. Remember that Florida went for Donald Trump, but they also passed a $15 minimum wage with a supermajority. You know, let's put forward a $2 trillion green infrastructure package, renewable energy infrastructure package that invests not only in the roads and bridges. I know we need a, a bridge right here in West Seattle, Magnolia. We got a lot of bridges we got to fix here in the city. But in, in addition to that, um, water systems, schooling, those can all be rebuilt, green, renewable energy, good union jobs. And I believe that there will be bipartisan support for that. Immigration, I think that there is bipartisan support for at least significant pieces of immigration reform. Marijuana legalization, or at least decriminalization of marijuana. Again, something that passed in red and blue states across the country in a very populist ballot initiative format. So these are all things that uh, I believe that we could do. And then on top of that, add to it that um, Joe Biden should use his executive authority. He should use every tool in his toolbox. He can cancel student debt. He absolutely can. We've spoken to a number of lawyers about this. There is no reason that he shouldn't do that because that benefits not only young people, you know, and by young, I'm talking 45 and under is where a big majority of student debt is held, but also the fastest growing demographic of student, uh, student debt holders is seniors, seniors who have taken on the debt of their kids or their grandkids kids and are operating on fixed incomes. I think we can uh, dramatically expand social security. I think we can dramatically expand uh, drop the Medicare eligibility age and force the Senate to vote no on lowering the Medicare eligibility age to 50 and covering all kids to 25. Force them to vote on an aggressive uh, pharmaceutical drug pricing package. These are things that are extremely popular um, across the country. So I hope we don't have a situation where the Senate is controlled by Republicans, but even if it is, I think there's a lot we can get done. I want to shift over and talk about uh, the incoming Biden administration, get some of your thoughts on that. We know that Bernie Sanders has said that he is unhappy that there haven't been more progressives in Biden's cabinet thus far. Do you share that sentiment? Well, um, I would have liked to see lots more progressives in the Biden administration, but we knew we weren't going to get every pick. I will say that we submitted a list very early on. Um, to the Biden administration for cabinet secretaries, and then also a separate list for sub-cabinet and other positions. And 
Um, the picks we are really happy about, I just want to highlight because it's significant. Deb Holland for Secretary of Interior. We are just so, I, I can't tell you, I got tears in my eyes when I heard um, that she would be there as a first Native American woman and presiding over the cabinet that actually um, advocated for the extermination of the Native peoples. And so I think at one time. And so what a change that is and how amazing that is. She is clearly a progressive and she's gonna fight fiercely for all of us. Um, also, you know, Janet Yellen was on our list and um, she, I worked very closely with her on the Paycheck Recovery Act. And I think she will be a very good choice for treasury. In addition, uh, Javier Becerra is a progressive and we look forward to seeing him as Secretary of Health and Human Services. He is a big supporter of Medicare for All, as you might know. Not that I think that uh, Joe Biden is gonna put in Medicare for All, though we're gonna do everything we can to move it in the House. Um, but I think that's an important pick. Also, Catherine Tai as trade representative is somebody that we worked closely with, um, even though we didn't ultimately support the USMCA. She was very, very good in um, fighting for some of the worker provisions, environmental provisions, and other provisions that were important to us. And then finally, and extremely importantly, Alejandro Mayorkas um, as Secretary of Department of Homeland Security. We know Mayorkas well from my days in, uh, on immigrant rights. Um, and he, I think, will bring a whole different perspective to an unruly, uncontainable, unaccountable um, uh, cabinet, uh, cabinet position or, or cabinet department, uh, it, is, it is a terrible agency. And I'm really glad to see that he's going to be there. I personally would like to see it completely restructured. But at a minimum, I believe he will bring a humane approach to immigration policy within DHS. I want to ask you a little bit about accountability in the Biden administration, because I know that he met with progressive groups, including yourself, uh, before the election. Uh, and he worked I th he worked in good faith, I think, to incorporate certain priorities into his platform. How are you in the CPC looking to hold Biden to account uh, for that when he's when he's in office? Well, one of the things is in our progressive agenda, um, and this is something that uh, Barbara Lee, my friend Barbara Lee, uh, is, is taking a lead role on. We are actually going to go through and outline all the things that are part of the Democratic platform that Biden agreed to, because there's a lot in there that is part of the platform that he agreed to. There are some things that go beyond what he said. We're gonna, we, we've always believed that that platform was the floor and not the ceiling. So what we need to do is hold him to what he said. And obviously there's a legislative process also that's gonna be necessary to make some of these things happen. But um, you know, I think that is very, very important. As you said, I co-chaired the Unity Task Force, the, Sanders, the Biden Sanders Unity Task Force on healthcare. Um, when Bernie asked me to do that, and actually when I spoke to Vice President, at that time, Vice President Biden um, as well, when he asked me to do it, I told him that I was never gonna stop fighting for Medicare for all, that's what I believe is real. But I understanding that my candidate lost and that he won, I would do everything I could to come to the best possible resolution and get as much as I could into the platform. And so that's what we did. You know, We got some amazing things into the Biden platform on healthcare, um, including lowering the Medicare age, not to 50 as we want it, but to 60, but still significant untethering healthcare from employment, uh, making sure that people are automatically enrolled 
um, into any public option, making sure that any public option is actually run by Medicare and not by private insurance companies, adding 600,000 new long-term care jobs so that we get rid of that 800,000 person waiting list for long-term care, and then really aggressive pharmaceutical drug pricing, even better than what we passed in the House, um, are just some of the things that we were able to get into the Biden platform. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez co-chaired the climate platform, and I think uh, she and the Sunrise Movement and others who were on that task force also got some really significant wins into the climate platform. So if at a minimum we could get done what Biden committed to in the platform, we would be in a dramatically different place. It is the most progressive uh, platform that any president has run on. And it's really thanks to progressives, young people, folks of color across the country that um, made that happen. You're getting a lot of agreements in the comments, I'm sure you can see. Um, I want to take a bit of a hard turn here and talk about something that is is, is troubling for a lot of people. As you know, we are 28 days out from uh, Biden's inauguration, and I want to discuss what Trump has been doing in his final days. So um, reports from Axios and New York Times are indicating that Trump continues to have Oval Office meetings with former National Security Advisor, disgraced former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, uh, Counsel Sidney Powell, a number of others. Uh, the reports are that Trump is considering declaring martial law and seizing voting machines. I'll just ask you flat out, how personally are you concerned by these reports? I'm incredibly concerned. I think this is so unbelievably destructive. And what I think is really destructive is the fact that Republicans are going along with them. It took so long for any Republicans to say anything against what he was doing. And, you know, we just have to understand that the undermining of democracy doesn't happen just when you win. It happens when you introduce doubt about how our democracy works and how our elections work. And that's what he has done the entire time. And he's had Republicans either agreeing with him or refusing to say anything. And to me, that is incredibly destructive. And even now you see, you know, whether it's on COVID and people not believing that COVID is a real threat and continuing to fight back against any kind of um, you know, health regulations around COVID or whether it is around voting. Um, he has caused so much destruction to our democracy. And I really fundamentally believe that he has to be held accountable. He's got to be held accountable for the corruption. He's got to be held accountable for all of the things he's doing, inc including, by the way, these ridiculous pardons that he just did tonight for Papadopoulos and uh, Chris Collins and, and others. Um, it is so outrageous. And I think we're all exhausted by Donald Trump. Um, we all are just looking to the next, you know, administration, but we cannot, we cannot allow this to just go unchallenged. And hopefully, you know, the, the Southern District of New York and other courts that are challenging him will, will play a part in this. But I really do believe that President Biden um, should form a commission or, you know, find some way, not that he should be distracted. We have other things that we need to do. So this cannot distract us. But there should be some legitimate way that Donald Trump is investigated and held accountable for what he has done to our democracy. 
you sit on the Judiciary Committee, um, and you know there's debate as to whether or not this should be done by Congress or the DOJ. Um, you know, to as you say, hold uh, Trump accountable for his many crimes uh, and, and and transgressions committed not only by him but by family members, by uh, members of his administration. Um, where is your thinking in terms of congressional hearings as somebody on the Judiciary Committee? Well, we are, you know, we are continuing, for example, with the Don McGahn subpoena, you might have seen that the, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, um, has put out a statement saying we're not dropping that case. We're going to continue with it because we do believe that people should testify before our committees. That is absolutely essential for accountability between the houses. I mean, we are uh, we are not just a co-equal branch. We are actually the people's house. We're article one of the constitution. And so um, you will see some activity in the house, in the judiciary committee. At the same time, you know, I think we want to be careful. We have a lot of things we have to do for the American people. And we have to walk that balance of, which is why I said, you know, I think having a separate, some sort of a separate body that investigates him, in addition to the judiciary committee doing some of our work, in addition to the to the other courts doing their work um, and attorneys general and others. Um, I think this will probably need to be a multi-pronged effort um, because we have to both hold them accountable and we also have to respond to the crisis at hand. And I don't want this next administration to be about Donald Trump. I want it to be about the people and delivering real bold structural change for people. I will just ask you if you feel that there's anything that Democrats, I guess, and or progressive activists could be doing in this moment in preparation, in response. I mean, Chris Murphy took to the the, the Senate floor and basically said this is a hair on fire moment. And he was referring to the 126 Republicans who signed on to that amicus brief to invalidate millions of votes. And, and he basically said, if we as Democrats do not stop what the GOP seems to be becoming, which is an anti-democracy party, um, we may, they may legitimately start to steal elections in the future. Do you feel that there's anything that Democrats should be doing in this moment? Well, I think that um, there's obviously going to be a big push for people around the country to say, oh, let's just not do anything about this. Let's let it go. I mean, there are a lot of people that trace some of what is happening now back to the pardon of Nixon, um, Gerald Ford's pardon of Nixon, that that's that was the beginning of saying that some things are, you know, we can get through them and nobody has to be held accountable. Um, whether you agree with that or not, I think that we as Democrats have to be very careful not to allow ourselves to go into that place. We do have to hold Donald Trump and his family accountable for the corruption, for the destruction of democracy, for the lack of respect for our constitution. We have to do that because otherwise other people uh, in you know who are Donald Trump like will see that we've done nothing and then we might get another president who does all of those same things at the same time I also think that it's time for us to look at revamps to parts of our constitution you know article 25 um, the 25th amend uh, amendment um, we Jamie Raskin has an update for that so that if a president really is not of mental capacity, that there's an independent commission that looks at that. And um, there are you know, different things I think that we need to look at doing to strengthen Congress's power to require testimony. Um, it, you know, inherent immunity um, and qualified immunity, I mean, these are things 
that we really couldn't use because they're there, but there was no mechanism to put them into play in this Congress. And so there are things we have to fix. And I think you'll see a package of democracy reforms that are geared to that, um, that you know, also, for example, limit presidential pardons, things like that. So I, I do think that the, those things that we sort of assumed some, you know, any president would, would um, respect certain norms and mores, uh, we can't do that anymore. We really have to specify. This is precisely the kind of thing that I intend to do programming on in the future um, uh, on, on the podcast. Uh, and I was actually, Kat and I were just talking about that before we began tonight. Uh, it's, it's such an important discussion and an ongoing one, and one that I think is absolutely existential for us as a nation. Uh, I'll just tell everybody right now, we're going to get to questions in just a moment. So please, if you have them, enter them into the chat bar. Um, I would like to end our portion of the discussion by talking about Indivisible's agenda for the 2021 session. So... If the Democrats take the Senate, Indivisible is going to be doing four things. We're going to be pushing for H.R. 1 and H.R. 4, which is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, advocating for D.C. statehood, and then pushing for court reform, which could include expanding the Supreme Court. I'll ask you, where does the CPC, the Congressional uh, Caucus, stand on Supreme Court expansion, and how do you feel that might work with the 50-50 Senate? Well, I think the thing that's hard about court expansion is it's difficult to get it done unless we have a majority. But I think that we absolutely need to reform the courts. It's not just about the Supreme Court, I would say, from our perspective. It's actually about all of the courts. Donald Trump has stacked all of the lower courts now as well. And so I think that there are some very good proposals. Uh, Ro Khanna has a proposal around the Supreme Court expansion. Uh, it's not really around expansion, but it's essentially around rotation. Um, where you would actually be able to rotate people through. It's, it's, there are some interesting proposals out there. We had um, uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder come and talk to the CPC about some of those proposals. I think there is a lot of um, unity around the idea of needing to reform the courts. So that does require, though, a Senate majority. And so that is, that is a bit of the challenge there. Um, the other things that you mentioned are all in our agenda, our six-month agenda, our uh, people's agenda, DC statehood. I will say that we are pushing for a few reforms to HR1. So I'm working with John Sarbanes right now to take some of the provisions in my bill with Elizabeth Warren, the Anti-Corruption Act. Um, and we have about four or five uh, corporate accountability and money out of politics provisions that we think should be strengthened given what we've seen. Um, and so, uh, those we hope to get into HR1. And then the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, given the tremendous things, horrendous, horrendous things that we saw in this last election, there are also some um, additional reforms to the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that I think people would like to see. So in our agenda, as you might have noticed, we didn't put bill numbers in there um, or bill names in there just because there are a few areas that we would like to strengthen even as we pass, um, you know, HR1 will be HR1 again. We just hope it's a slightly strengthened version and we're working with Sarbanes and others to, um, to make sure we do that well and in unity and do it together. And I really do encourage people to check out the People's Agenda. And we, again, have provided that in the chat bar. Uh, so I will ask also about the scenario in which the Democrats fail to take the Senate. This obviously is the less favorable of the two, but I'm 
I'm actually kind of excited to think about the ways in which Indivisible and the CPC might work together. Um, because Indivisible's plan is to encourage the House to pass as much progressive legislation as possible so as to embolden Biden to use his executive orders in a very powerful way. So I'll just ask you, what are your thoughts on how Indivisible and the Progressive Caucus can work together on this? Well, we've already been, I mean, I don't know if you all saw Ezra's fantastic shout out on Rachel Maddow yes. for uh, our role that we played. I was like, he texted me and said, I'm, I'm about to go on Maddow and my number one uh, thing that I want to get across is what an incredible job you did in getting these uh, survival checks in and what an amazing role you played. So we really appreciated that from Indivisible and from Ezra. So we have um, been working closely with Indivisible and will continue, of course, I in with you in the state, um, because I do think that we need to push uh, all our Democratic colleagues and, you know, we have a great delegation, um, but we have to just make sure that people understand the urgency of the crisis, the humanitarian crises, the suffering. Um, Bishop Barber actually just called me five minutes before I got on this call, um, you know, because I think that there's some fear that we're getting inured to the suffering, to the deaths. Um, we're almost at 320,000 deaths now. And uh, anybody who wants to bring up debt or deficit has to just go and throw that in a trash can. This is not the time to be thinking about debt and deficit. This is the time to be thinking about how government steps up to help people. And we have one shot at this. You know, a lot of people, young people in particular, folks of color, gave us another chance. They either weren't voting before or they hadn't voted in a long time because they didn't really believe that Democrats were any different. They didn't believe that we were going to fight for them instead of for, uh, for you know, instead of for the corporations and the hundreds of lobbyists that line our door. And now they gave us a chance. But if we don't deliver really substantial, bold change now, we may lose them for a generation not only will we lose the midterms, but we may get another Trump-like figure in 2024. We got to fix healthcare. We got to, you know, get people back into jobs. We got to take on climate change. We got to get immigration off the table as a political football. I mean, these are big, giant things that we've got to make progress on if we are going to get people to continue to believe in government and in democracy. You're getting a lot of yeses. You're getting a lot of amens, uh, a lot of agreement there. I have two other agenda items, and then I want to stay good to my word uh, that we begin taking audience questions at 745. So indivisible agenda item number two without the Senate is to deliver wins through must-pass funding bills, such as the omnibus that just passed or the NDAA. What are some things that you might push for in 2022 uh, for must-pass bills? Oh, I think this entire agenda that we've talked about, you know, there's a lot that can get done in these must pass bills. I mean, we were able to get some paid leave into, um, you know, into some of the must pass bills, but a, a lot of the pieces are also budgetary. Um, and so these appropriations bills become very important. We want to cut Pentagon spending. We want to cut the waste, fraud, abuse, and slush funds of Pentagon spending. I personally voted no on the DOD DHS appropriations bill last night because it is unconscionable to me that we could put $750 billion into the Pentagon. It's not money that's going to our service members, by the way. It's money that's going to defense contractors and giant nuclear weapons and missile systems that aren't even anything that keep us safe. Going into pockets of defense contractors 
And so, um, you know, there are lots of things that we can do through the appropriations process and through must-pass spending bills. So just about anything on that list you could actually attach to a must-pass bill. It's a little more complicated than that, but um, that is obviously always uh, something that we look at when we're trying to get something done. The last item is a biggie, <laughs> and I, I, I think that this is uh, something that you and I could talk about for quite some time. But the last uh, agenda, uh, agenda item is to set Democrats up to win in 2022. We know that midterms are generally tough for first-term presidents. We know that we have a lot of gerrymandering that is probably going to happen by Republicans. What do you think we need to do as progressives to win in 2022? People have to feel that their lives are different. People have to feel that they've got money in their pocket, that they have hope for the future, that they're not worried about how to pay their rent or their utilities, um, that they can you know, consider sending their kids to college, that they get relief from medical debt and from college debt, um, that they can afford to buy a home. I mean, th- these are tangible things. It's not just policy, right? It's how people feel. And at the end of the day, that's what people go into the ballot box and they, they vote for people that they feel are standing up for them. And it has to be with direct action. They're gonna to have to see some change. If they don't see any change, then I think we are, um, to use a very technical term, really screwed. So I, I think you know this is the work that progressives are gonna to have to do. And I know that there are a lot of people who are like, oh, just compromise, you can't get everything just get something. And there are times, let me tell you, when we have to do that, like this this relief bill last night, it's not what I wanted, but it's better than nothing. But that cannot be the approach going into this next Congress. If things are dominated by people who just want incremental change and want to worry about the debt and the deficit, we're going to lose in 2022. So we have to have bold change. I've talked to the speaker about this. I actually think she agrees. Um, I think that you know, the, the, and I think Joe Biden agrees. I think that this is a situation that we have not had in this country with multiple crises, racial justice crisis, an economic crisis, and a pandemic all at the same time. Um, and very intertwined, by the way. I mean, those things are so intertwined. Um, there is a reason that Black, Brown, and Indigenous people are dying. And oh, by the way, 87 million people didn't have health care even before COVID ever hit. And the vast majority of those were low-income folks and Black, Brown, and Indigenous people who didn't have that health care. So um, we just have to be very conscious of, um, of these different intersections. And we have to really push our colleagues, including Democratic colleagues, to be bold and to think about the suffering of people across this country and to really use our platform to lead. I, I know that you have a heart out at eight o'clock tonight. We have so many questions. We will try to get to as many as we can tonight, gang. Uh, you mentioned the many crises that uh, Biden is going to be facing when he gets into office. Uh, certainly the pandemic, the economic crisis, uh, the racial justice crisis. And add to that now, unfortunately, uh, the, the the hacking crisis from Russia. Um, uh, Demita asks uh, your thoughts on the security of our infrastructure from the Russian hack. Uh, We are not secure, period. Um, We have to do so much work on cybersecurity, on election security. Um, That needs money. That needs focus. uh, That needs attention. Uh, You know, Donald Trump doesn't want to admit that Russians are doing anything bad to us. And we, we have had all kinds of, even when his own intelligence agencies are telling him he needs to do something, he's not willing to. 
Um, and so absolutely, that has to be a top priority. And I think that the, the national security team that Joe Biden has put together, while it's not as progressive as I would like to see, these are people that are mostly have been there before and will probably run a fairly centrist policy in many of these areas. I do think that these are things they will take seriously. Christine and Leslie ask, what can the Progressive Caucus do to push for nationwide elimination of private detention facilities? Well, um, as you know, I have the Dignity for Detained Immigrants bill, which is a dramatic transformation of the detention system. And we did get a number of pieces of that into the Biden administration um, platform. And we've been working with the folks on immigration. We know many of them. In fact, the CPC is going to have a meeting with the immigration transition folks. Um, but that is a top priority. I mean, obviously, you know, to uh, get rid of the for-profit private prisons, just like Eric Holder did in the, on the criminal justice side, and then Donald Trump put them back. But now we need to do that on the immigration side as well, include alternatives to detention and really focus on the fact that people need services. They don't need to be detained. The vast majority of people do not need to be in these detention centers. We should increase our asylum and refugee processing and capacity. We should make sure that we pass uh, humane immigration reform. Um, we have in our COVID relief package, by the way, that we should legalize all frontline essential workers. There are lots of DACA folks and farm workers who are picking food that goes on our food tables and in our food banks. They can't be called essential and then at the same time be deported. They should be given legalization. So those are things we'll push for right, right from the beginning in COVID relief. Well, and related to that, Alex asks, what can Congress do to reduce funding to ICE and CPB? Well, we have to cut the budgets. As you know, I have voted against the Department of Homeland Security budget because we keep increasing budgets. Um, this is the first year where um, the DHS budget is uh, at least, I think, going back to um, earlier, uh, earlier years, but it's still too much. So we have moved the needle on this, I think, because there are more of us that are objecting now to these budgets for Department of Homeland Security and specifically for ICE detention beds and ERO, that's removal operations for, for enforcement and removal operations. Um, it's absurd, it's absolutely absurd. And so the only way to bring accountability is to cut those budgets, which means we just have to say, we're not gonna, we're not gonna give you the votes for that appropriations bill if those budgets aren't cut, period. We have a question about, well, Trump's ongoing attempts to overthrow our elections, and this comes from Kevin. He says, if the January 6th counting of the Electoral College votes, even if challenge seems safe, given the House uh, uh, will vote to reject any challenges, is this your understanding? Kevin, I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm botching your question here. Could Vice no, President right. Pence, uh, Pence, for example, disallow the legitimate Electoral College votes from being considered, he asks. Well, it, so the way this works, and you might remember that when I came into office, I challenged the Electoral College votes um, in Congress. It was my second day, I think. Maxine Waters and Barbara Lee asked me if I would be a part of a group, along with Jim McGovern and Jamie Raskin and a number of others, um, to challenge the Electoral College votes. This has been done by Barbara Boxer in the past. It's been done by uh, the CBC uh, around the Al Gore election. Um, you have to get a senator to sign your petition. Otherwise, it's really a protest move. That's what it was for us. We, didn't, we knew we didn't have a senator to sign it, but we wanted to draw attention 
to the voting irregularities in Georgia and in other states across the country. And we wanted to really lodge our protest against how the election had resulted in Donald Trump winning. We thought that there were real flaws in what had happened, but we knew that wasn't gonna go anywhere because we didn't have a Senator. Um, and so what is gonna happen now is that um, it will depend on whether there is a Republican Senator who signs that challenge of the electoral college votes. That will happen on, on January 6th. If there is a Senator, it will still get defeated because it will go to a vote in the House and the Senate. And I don't believe based on what Republican senators are saying that there will be enough votes to topple, but it will require time and it will throw government into chaos for several days. And it will give um, you know, sort of uh, energy, if you will, to all these people who are just trying to overturn democracy. And you can imagine protests of white supremacists and um, you know, QAnon people and all the all the people who are who are trying to do this, and so I think it's very dangerous. Um, but uh, you know, I, I don't think it can succeed, and I do think that there are some Republicans who understand the danger of this, and they are trying to head this off. But I don't know if they'll be successful. I mean, you get might get a Senator Ron Johnson um, or somebody like that who is still sticking with Trump to. Um, you know, to, to sign an electoral college challenge. You mentioned the sorts of people that this would rile up, and Vivian has a question about that. What will you and Congress do to stop the spread of misinformation, hate, and racism of hate groups, vandalizing Americans, putting America at risk from domestic terrorists? And you, you likely just heard the report that uh, three percenters are now planning on occupying the state capitol in Olympia during this year's session. This is just the latest of, of so many stories like it. What, in your opinion, can be done at the federal level? Well, there are several things. I mean, first of all, the Department of Justice has to crack down on these hate groups and white supremacists. I mean, the Department of Justice, interestingly, and the FBI under Trump both released reports saying that white supremacy was the biggest domestic terror threat um, and white supremacist groups. And so I, I do think that all of the research is there. It's just that the Trump administration never did anything about it. And in fact, did the opposite, encouraged those groups and told them to stand back and stand by. So, um, you know, really gave them fuel for their hatred. So the first thing is our uh, federal agencies need to go after these groups. But in addition, you know, I sit on the Judiciary Committee, on the Antitrust Subcommittee. You know, we had a big investigation of the four major tech platforms. It was primarily around monopolies. But I did bring into my questioning of Mark Zuckerberg um, the whole question of hate speech on social media. I do believe we need very strong regulation. Um, and obviously we have First Amendment questions that we have to be concerned with, but I really think that these platforms cannot be allowed to have their, um, their, their entire model based on clickbait, untruthful, uh, you know, new so-called news reports. And so I think everything is wrong with the way that the that those companies make their money and the way that they get people in and capture data, um, regardless of whether the information is true or not. And they are serving as news organizations, essentially. I mean, we talked about this um, and, you know, the Seattle Times did some reporting on this as well, because 
It's sending news agencies, independent private news agencies out of business because they organization or companies like Google will just aggregate data and not check it at all, but have it be theirs and then take the ad revenue from that away from traditional news agencies. So there's a lot of work that's both antitrust, hate crimes, hate speech, regulatory that um, all needs to come into play. And that's why I'm saying like, it's a really, you know, there's a lot we have to do and it's a really big agenda. And really the Biden administration and Congress is gonna have to move on all cylinders all the time. That's why I had to get a, a well, I guess I can tell everyone I got a new knee. I got a re- knee replaced um, just three weeks ago. That's why I need a new knee. I need a bionic knee <laughs> to do all the work that we're gonna have to do in this next Congress. Congresswoman, there is no question in my mind that you are a bionic woman. There are so many questions we're not going to be able to get to, and I will make sure that they were, are forwarded on uh, to you. I will end with this question. It's something that's been rolling around in my head for a while, and, and I really would love your take on this. A number of political scholars believe that we are moving into a post-neoliberal era, uh, you know, the Milton Friedman trickle-down down economics that we were talking about earlier, and that people, and in particular young people, no longer trust implicitly the primacy of the free markets. And these theorists believe that we are about to enter into a new political era. You would be one of those people who would be instrumental in shaping that. What might a new era of government look like to you? Well, look, we just need a lot more regulation. Um, We need to redefine the role of government and government as it relates to maintaining rules that corporations are accountable to, but also in terms of services that are rights and responsibilities of government to provide to its citizens. And so when people talk about social democracies, you know, the, the terminology is, is all, um, it's, it's red baiting, right? When people uh, talk about socialism and you know try to scare people. All of that red baiting has one primary purpose, which is to have you, anybody across the country, believe that the possibilities for change are limited. So in other words, that you couldn't possibly have Medicare for all. That's a socialist idea. We don't want to go there, right? And instead, we need to have the private market provide insurance. No, the private market has a place in my belief, but it's, I'm not asking to buy my computer from the government, but I do think healthcare is a right and not a privilege and it should be provided by the government. And so that is, I think that is the argument that we're going to have to have. Young people have no fear of the word socialism. I mean, that is not, unless you're from a certain country in Latin America and your family comes with a history, perhaps you do, or from Vietnam or some other part of the world. Um, but the vast majority of young people um, actually believe that we need an alternative to capitalism. And so it is the the people that are in charge of the systems that make a lot of money and benefit from greed, because whatever system you have, you have to recognize that we don't suffer from scarcity in the United States. We suffer from greed. There's tremendous greed across the country. And you have giant corporations and the wealthiest people doing everything they can to preserve their luxuries, regardless of what it means for the vast majority of people. And you have government beholden to those people instead of really beholden to the people that elect us. And so that is always my priority is I am, I work for the people who elect me 
Um, I understand that I have a lot of my constituents who work for Amazon and Facebook and many of the other companies that I'm challenging in the antitrust subcommittee, but I believe that I get the votes I get because people actually want something different. They want to work for responsible companies, the kind of company that Boeing used to be when Seattle was a Boeing town. And Boeing created good middle-class union jobs. And that sense of common good and collective good was what was at the center of Boeing's philosophy. That's not true of the vast majority of large corporations today. So um, I believe that there's a different way forward. Call it a, a, a social democracy, call it whatever you want to call it, but it has to be with a robust role for government working for the people and regulating, heavily regulating um, the commerce and the activity so that it benefits people. You're singing my song, and I, I believe you're singing the song of a lot of people listening tonight. Um, incredible food for thought. I could have this discussion, this one particular discussion with you all night long, but I'm afraid that we have to let you go. Uh, I will say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, it's been such a pleasure. I hope that your knee heals up uh, as, as soon as is humanly possible, and we are all so grateful to have you uh, representing us uh, back in the other Washington. Well, thank you so much, Indivisible, and to all of you for just giving us hope that people's voices matter, that you are out there on the front lines, that you're doing everything you can to continue to push for progressive policies and for all the support that you've shown me since I've come in. And if you happen to be a 7th District constituent and you voted for me, thank you, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate it. Have Take a wonderful care, night. Everyone. Happy holidays. Happy and holidays. Let, let 2021 be everything that we want it to be. Goodbye, 2020. We're done with you. Kicking See it out ya. the door. Here, here's to that. Thank you again so much. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Good night. So this is going to be the last podcast of the year. As the Congresswoman said, it is time to say goodbye and good riddance to 2020. So I just want to take a quick moment to say a couple words. Uh, first and foremost, Thank you. Thank you to everyone listening. I know how much hard work you have all done, not just this year, but the last four years. You have organized, you've marched, you have canvassed, you have phone banked, you've text banked, you've written and organized thousands of postcards. I'm talking to you, Cheryl. You have run for office. You have worked full time and raised families, and you have also found time somehow to do all this activism because you know that it matters. You know that nothing less in the future of this country is at stake, and you have done simply superhuman work in support of that. Please know how grateful I am to you, how privileged and honored I am to be able to do this program for you, and also thank you for taking the time to listen. We have a lot more, and I mean a lot more, planned in the new year because, well, we got a lot more to do. So, Rest up, have a wonderful holiday, and if you need a reminder of why it was worth it these last four years, I will quote Hamilton, we won, we won, we won, we won. My thanks this week to Kat Pipkin, Julian Jievsky, Kevin Jones, Louise Pate, and Robin Gittleman. Special thanks to Chris Petzold, Chris Franco, Alex and Joe Johnson, Nina Masavi, and of course, my amazing mom, Janice Cox, and my amazing dad, Jim Cox. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at Demcast.com. 
podcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. Have a great holiday and we'll talk to you in the new year. Bye. Bye.